3: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I think recovery works because you build a life that you're not willing to lose. You put in mental barriers in between using at first, but then once you start looking at the underlying causes of it once you start connecting with people and you know things around you and, and and you start clearing the wreckage from your past and and looking at these patterns of behavior that keep coming up that keep causing damage in your life and then then when you start you know giving back and being of service to others what it's doing is setting yourself up for a life that you're not willing to lose which you would if you went back to drugs and so there becomes no good reason to use drugs anymore because it's not a solution to anything it will just cause more problems and so when you are living a life where you know that drugs are not a solution to anything there's no enticement there's no there's no urge to go and use drugs that's former olympic gold medal
4: diver matthew Mitchum, and this is episode 257 of the Osher ginsburg podcast Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 257 of the show with Matthew Mitchum. You can find him on Twitter, Matthew underscore Mitchum, M I T C H A M. Or, he's also on Instagram. His name, Matthew Mitchum, one word, and the letters, or numbers, 88, uh, as in the year. That's my alarm. Yes, I'm awake. I'm awake and I'm doing the podcast intro. Come on, phone. Chill it. Anyway, more about Matthew in a moment. Good morning. Welcome. Hi. Or good afternoon or good evening. Whenever you're choosing to listen to this, this is a podcast. You could be listening to it today or you could listening to it five years from now, in which case it would still be today. Uh, if you're new, what is this podcast? This podcast is a conversation that you get to be a part of, a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Now, sometimes this conversation will be with a name that you know you'll see your name, you'll recognize it, you'll download it, you go, oh yeah, I know that person. Sometimes it'll be with someone you don't know. But whatever the case, I guarantee no matter who is on my show, you will hear something that you need to hear today. You will hear something in the next hour and a bit that will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That is what I'm here to do. That's what this show's here to do. Who am I? Oh, well, I'm Osher, I'm a, I'm a TV host, I'm a podcaster, I'm an author from Australia, currently working on a television show called The Bachelorette. Uh, yep, Counting Roses in Sharp Borrowed Suits. I've just written a book, it's called Back After the Break. You can get it at osherginsburg.com. Speaking of which, um, there is a live show based around the book and we've got some new shows announced right now. I'm very, very excited about that. Basically, why did I make a show? Because I didn't want to be the guy standing at the back of a bookshop on a small, sad, folding table. Trying to flog books, so I called up Zoe Norton Lodge, who's a, a podcast favorite, an exceptional uh, actor and director and writer, an exceptional woman. She is one of the co co creators of Story Club, and um, Zoe helped me turn about fifteen hours of audiobook into a seventy minute show. Then I called up uh, Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hyder, who did all the music for this podcast since it started, and he helped me write a bunch of songs to get through the sticky parts that I'm a terrible actor so I can't really do that stuff very well but so Mike helped me write a bunch of songs to get us through those bits it's a, it's a great night There's laughs, there's tears, there's chances to sing along to power ballads. You can get tickets at osherginsburg.com. I really hope you can make the gig. We added a second Sydney show, which I'm super excited about, uh, Sunday, October 28th. So if you're listening to this the week it comes out, it's this Sunday. It's a giant dwarf on Cleveland Street. I'd really love you to come along if you can. I know it's a school night. I know it's a school night. I promise it'll be worth it. All the shows are meet and greets. Uh, And most shows uh, are doing a book ticket combo deal. So if you want a book... Uh, you can get a book with your ticket and I'll be there after the show with a Sharpie and you can come and say hi, we can have a chat, You can have a photo, whatever you need, come and say g'day. Um, if you've already got a book, bring the book, I'll sign it for you. It'd be great to have you there. Sunday, October 28th, Giant Dwarf, if you're in Sydney, I hope you can come along to that Sydney show, it might be a while before we get another Sydney show up. Melbourne, I love you Melbourne, we sold out the first Melbourne show in eight days, that's enormous, so we have added a second show in Melbourne. I'm so excited to say that. Thank you so much for all of that support. Thursday, December 13th, also at Chapel Love Chapel. We're in the same venue for both nights. Thank you so much, Melbourne. You make me so, so happy. I cannot wait to see you. Please bring a friend. Thursday, December 13th. I know it's Christmas party season, so thanks in advance for the extra effort to get out of the house to come and see the show. I promise it'll be worth it. All the shows are the big show uh it's uh, some because i'm doing speaking gigs at the moment but no this is the one with me with toe with guitars with uh, me singing to the full extent of my limited vocal range the big screen all the bells and whistles um it's the big show so i really hope you can come along if you can't make the gig if it's a little too far from you for you to get to please tell someone that lives near and let them know if you think they would enjoy the show it would have mean the world to me sunday 28th of October. In Sydney. Uh, like I said, that's the last time we'll be in Sydney for a while, long, long time. So if you haven't seen the show and you'd like to come and see, see the show, that'll be your chance. Melbourne, December 13th, tickets are on sale right now. Oshiginsburg.com Brisbane. You're on sale very soon. Uh, the Night's locked in, February the 8th, okay? February the 8th, Brisbane. So you bought your tickets to the show, Oshiginsburg.com. Let's check in. I should check in. So the last few weeks, I've been telling you quite honestly that I've been struggling. I've been struggling. I've also told you that I've been doing the work. Because when I struggle, I know what I have to do. I can't just sit there in the struggle and go, Ooh, I'm worried about everything. Fucking world's ending. I have to do the work. Um, and you know what? The work is working. Every morning when I write in my little book, my little book that I got from Muji, that beautiful Japanese shop. Every morning when I write in my journal, i like, I give myself a score out of 10. I give them like like an anxiety score, right? How am I feeling out of day? What am I doing out of 10? Anything more than five for a few days in a row, that's straight to the doctor for me, all right? I just, I won't stand for that. But I give myself an honest score every morning. And even though my brain is trying to tell me that the uncomfortable feeling that I wake up with will last forever, and that every morning will end up the same, I only have to leaf back a couple of pages through my book You know what? I see that it's not real. Because sure enough, a few days ago, I was waking up with my score being three or four every day. Not fun. It wasn't fun. But I try to do the work. I lift the weights. I write the journal. I do the purposeful work throughout the day. I connect with people. I aim for eight hours of sleep. I try to be there for my family. I try to get my snout out of my phone for a little while every day. And you know what? The next day, that score goes down, and then the day after that, that score goes down again. I had to put a number on it, so I wrote down zero point five the other day. That was yesterday. That's not bad for just a week. Not bad at all. And I, I'm in Melbourne. Just I, I, the sound of trams going by the hotel, and uh, I did this late night gig last night. And Audrey and I, she looked fit last night. She looked so damn good. She looked just too good to go straight home. So we ended up going out late. And Anyway, I only got about five hours sleep. So this morning it's understandable that my level was higher again, but that's okay. Cause I know that in a couple of days I can get it down to 0.5 again. It's always profound when I'm able to challenge the internal feeling that this mental state that I've got is a permanent state. Your moods and your feelings can change as quickly as the weather here in Melbourne. Seriously, it was four seasons in one day, just like the song yesterday. It was full on. Speaking of the weather, (laughs) speaking of the weather, uh, we had a a by-election in our electorate in Sydney the other day. Um, For people outside of Australia, I live uh, in an electoral seat or an electoral district known as the seat of Wentworth, where our former Prime Minister Malcolm Malcolm Turnbull, he held the seat. But for some reason, unbeknownst to... Well, the true reason unbeknownst to anyone really outside of talkback radio hosts and private party rooms, he's not a prime minister anymore. And because of that, he stepped away from politics and we had to vote someone else in. So it wasn't a general election. We're just voting for this one particular seat. Now, I'm under no illusions. The seat I live in is the most densely populated seat in the country. If you take out, there's two big parks in our area, one where all the football stadiums are and one Centennial Park where i ride my bicycle around. If you take those two parks out, we live in the most densely populated district in the country. And it's been a liberal stronghold for 70 years. Now, for my listeners outside of Australia, our liberals are the furthest thing from liberal-minded people around. I don't know how they got that name, but that's what they went with, and and it stuck. Um but liberal means not liberal. It's like the super conservative party, the conservative party. Um, Regardless, after 70 years, 70 years, it's no longer a liberal seat. This was the bluest of blue ribbon, blue seats. Switch that to red if you're thinking of American politics, all right? It doesn't get any bluer. And they lost the seat. And they not only lost it to an independent candidate, so someone from no you know major Australian political party they lost it to a woman and (laughs) not that it matters they lost it to an openly gay woman now if that doesn't say something about what the country wants from its leaders and the massive difference between what the message from those leaders is about the state of and the attitude of our country versus what the people actually want then I don't know what is because that's an extraordinary message to send. What really made me happy was that as we approached the polling booth uh, voting in Australia is quite an ex- it's, it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful experience because with the, the polling places it's, it's usually the primary school and if if you live in the area where you grew up and you're like oh shit I'm back in mrs. Smith's class why are the chairs so tiny geez the toilets are small but as you, as you approach um, the polling area, there's all people outside handing out how to vote cards because we have a, an election system where it's compulsory to vote. And so there's all these cards, of the numbers of all the candidates, and you have to number the candidates from the one you want the most to the one you want the least. And so different political parties give their preferences to other parties if they don't win. And it's a bit complicated. So you need a bit of guidance around that sometimes. But as we approached the polling booth and where we were, there were, I think, six different um, parties political parties and candidates who had representatives there. Um, three of those six people held out the form, held out the piece of paper, and they all said, vote to take action on climate change or make sure you vote for climate change. Vote for action on climate change. If you're concerned about climate change, here's the vote. Now, I don't know if they read my book. I doubt it. But that was what they led with. And it was number one on all the, you know, their paraphernalias. That's three different candidates representing three different independent parties, all leading with climate change as the thing to get people's attention as they they wandered by to try and make their vote and eat their democracy sausage. If you don't know what a democracy sausage is, happy Googling. But Audrey participated in that ritual yesterday too. And that was really exciting for me. Um, And it was interesting as well, looking at the incumbent candidates, and now, you know, I see that, you know, these are the people that represented the parties that... the best other option. And they're all old white men. Old white men who don't give a shit about the planet. And old white men generally don't give a shit about the planet because they won't live in it. They don't care. So I'm really grateful that yesterday at election time, and certainly whenever it's election time near you, I certainly hope you just just don't vote for the old white guy. Vote for your kids. And that seemed to be what happened yesterday. And that made me very happy. Because I had this, I was at a charity gig last night and I had a very interesting and in-depth conversation with a bloke sitting at the table next to me who absolutely loves Donald Trump. And he was extolling the virtues of Donald Trump and the economic, you know, gains of Donald Trump. We had this fantastic conversation. I was really grateful to speak to him about it. Because he and I can have very different ideas about the economy. We can have very different ideas about defense spending and we can have different ideas about transport policy. We can have all these different ideas about, you know, immigration and all kinds of stuff. That's fine. But I'm sure that he and I would like to have these different ideas free of the pressures of a collapsing ecosystem and rising sea levels. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I certainly hope that he and I could, you know, find some common ground on that. So when it does come time to vote near you, and I'm, I'm talking like change happens at the ground level. So when it comes time to vote at the council level, the state level, the federal level, cracky, the PNC, on the, you know, vote for your kids. Vote for your kids. And that's what happened yesterday. I'm excited to see how it plays out. I really am. We might be a little, you know, political turmoil in our country for a little while. But once again, every time, my big brother always said, look what happened. Look what happened in our country. We just had this massive shift and not a shot was fired. We're very, very lucky. He's right. We're bloody lucky that we can shift so much politically and there's no political violence around it. We're a very, very fortunate part of the world to have that happen. Anyway, enough of my bloody political rantings.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big
2: wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices
1: due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at
2: mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: Let me tell you about my guest today. I'm really happy about my guest today. Matthew Mitchum is a retired Olympic diver who has a life full of of firsts. He's the first openly gay athlete to ever win an Olympic gold medal, winning that gold medal with the highest ever single dive score in Olympic history. Now, while Matthew's career was incredibly high profile, and he indeed achieved dominance in his sport, it was what happened out of the pool that has, in my opinion, shaped the wonderful man who came over to our apartment this week. Matthew wrote a memoir in 2012 called Twists and Turns and is currently topping off a linguistics degree as he grows into a superb cabaret performer. Yes, indeed. He's actually got a show this week as well. It's called Up Close and Personal with Matthew Mitchum. It's on the night before my show, Son, uh, Saturday, 27th of October. So Saturday, 27th October, 7pm at the Bondi Pavilion Theatre. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can grab a ticket for that. Now, this conversation with Matthew talks a bit about diving. It talks a bit about sexuality, but it talks a lot about addiction and recovery. There's quite a bit of stuff in here that might trigger you if you or someone you know has a history of addiction, particularly crystal meth use. And if you need someone to talk to in Australia, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or reach out to the crisis counselling service in your area Um, because it's super important. This is a really great conversation. I was really happy to have a long conversation about recovery with someone who's also in recovery um, because it's not often that I get to have that chance. Uh, Now, speaking of reaching out, in this conversation, Matthew and I speak a lot about meetings. The meetings are everywhere. They're not hard to find. And if you need help, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to not need to drink or use again, from my experience and the things that I've seen in others, you will find what you need in those meetings. I can't recommend them enough. If you've never had a problem, though, with drinking or using, and I'm, gr- I'm glad you don't, I hope this conversation gives you a bit of a window into what life can be like in recovery, and the daily work that can happen so that life doesn't need to be a repetitive downward spiral heading to the foregone conclusion of institution, hospitalisation or incarceration or worse. I guess that's not the chirpiest intro I've ever done to a podcast, but this is a solid chat. This is a solid chat with a solid guy that's got some solid time. And it was, for me, it was, I was really grateful Matthew came over because it was really bloody good to talk about recovery this way. I was able to have that conversation a little bit in the book, but to be able to talk about recovery with someone who's in recovery and explore those, you know, uh, concepts around recovery um, with someone like that, it, I'm really, really grateful that I had that chance. You can find Matthew... Uh, on Twitter, if you want to let him know that you heard the show, he's uh, Matthew Mitchum. That's an underscore in between Matthew and Mitchum, M-I-T-C-H-A-M, Matthew with two T's. And his Instagram is Matthew Mitchum88, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, M-I-T-C-H-A-M, 8-8. Let him know you heard him here. Give him a shout out. Say hey. And certainly, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matthew Mitchum.
1: Hey, thanks for coming over, Matthew. No worries. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. I um, I woke up. So that's always a plus. Um, I did a little gratitude list this morning, as I do every morning. That's probably what made me a couple of minutes late, although I wasn't that late after all. Um, Not at all. Yeah. I was stressing. Like, Yeah, I was stressing about getting here on time because I'm like, oh, my God, how unprofessional would it be if I didn't arrive a couple of minutes early? (laughs) Look how professional you are. You've written notes. and Every day.
4: No, this is my gratitude list.
1: Oh, right. No way. It's my little thing every day. Oh, that's cute. I sit here every
4: day and do it. I do it and then I give myself a little out of 10 how my anxiety is going that day.
1: Oh, and that's Today weird.
4: I'm at 0.5 out of 10. Wow. But a couple of days ago I was 4 out of 10, which is uncomfortable and I'm kind of
1: stuck there for a couple of days. Oh, my God, a couple of days ago. I how was long have you been like doing the gratitude list? A couple of years yeah. um, since I've been um, in recovery, I guess. Well, I mean I've been in recovery for seven years. I think I've been doing the gratitude lists for about – three years um yeah what do you get out of it um it's just it's just a bit of routine like it's just daily maintenance you know um yeah i mean there's a couple of reasons for it i mean one is um you know those days when you know the whole world decides to conspire an almighty crap attack against you and um you know it's uh and you feel like you've got nothing to live for and like everything's just black and it's like well if that does happen um, and i feel like there's nothing to live for at least i'll have thought of three things that morning that i've got so that it's not just this this really um black nothingness um but i've found that actually since doing these gratitude lists i i'm not looking for evidence that the world is conspiring against me anymore so of course things go wrong but i'm not like I'm not linking them up saying, you know, like this and this and this and this and this. It's like this. Oh, okay. And that, oh, that's a separate thing. And that's a separate thing. It's not like my whole life is, you know, turning to shambles. So...
4: It's interesting, isn't it?
1: That it's such mm. a simple, simple thing to do. Yeah. But it can help you recalibrate that filter of input. Yeah. um, And I, like, I can't just write, like, I used to, like, type them out, but... I found that I wasn't actually doing it because it was just like a chore. And so now I turn them into little um, works of art um, like that.
4: Boy, you have a steady hand, man. Calligraphy is your thing?
1: Yeah. Wow. Just keep swiping. Wow, that's beautiful. And so turning them into little works of art is, um, you know, it it has another added thing onto it because it's yeah. like it's quite a meditative process. True. And, um, and then I get a little bit of um, extra like validation out of it because I've created something beautiful that wasn't there before. Mm. Yeah.
4: My psychiatrist in Los Angeles who I went to go see when I was really sick, he, you know, he, he always told me, he's like, you can't just put it in your phone. He mm. said it doesn't work. If you put it in your phone, you have to get your arm moving. You have to get your hand moving. The energy has to get out of your brain, down your arm. Onto a piece of paper, yeah. you have to then be able to see it. There's something like that's something about closing that loop of process that your brain goes, "Oh yeah, that's that." Mm. That and this is a, a learned science man. Yes, this is not a dream catcher or a crystal in sight. <laughs> I was it's
1: just about, just, about there to were say white like, boys in his office. <laughs> I was just about to say like that's um, a really interesting to get like a um, a, a medical and scientific sort of um, basis behind it because obviously like all of the everything that I do for my mental health all comes through um, my involvement in 12-step programs. Uh, Like, I've been in recovery from drugs and alcohol for seven years. So, you know, but that's um, – it's not a religious program, but it's certainly a spiritual program. And, you know, and some of the things it's it's kind of, you know, I think – you question whether or not it works because it's not science behind it. But then again, you look at all the people who have gotten clean and sober from doing this stuff. And it's like, well, if a scientist didn't um, put this program together, like how does it, how does it actually work? Yeah. Um, You know, is it indoctrination? Is it like, is it a cult? Um, But I think it's just a matter of repetition, like just doing the right things over and over again.
4: I've I've explored this as well as, you know, I'm in a, uh, I'm in a 12 step, fellowship, a sobriety-based fellowship, Mm -hmm. which is a step-based program. Uh, And I have been for eight and a half years now, maybe Mm -hmm. a bit more now. Um, And it's extraordinary how how when you look back, the science of why it works is so abundantly clear. Mm. But the people that created the program in the 20s, Mm -hmm. I think it first started Oxford House, I think, in upstate New York, the people that created that program, they didn't know what they were doing. They no. just are like, this is the stuff that's working, all right. But then, and if you look at it, they basically created CBT before CBT was like thirty years before CBT was a mm-hmm. thing, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and but there's so many things of why it works. In that it's it's the taking responsibility, uh, being an acceptance, mm-hmm. um, only working on the things that you can actually control. Mm-hmm. And then an extraordinary amount of, and there's so much research now coming around around loneliness, um, an extraordinary amount of social contact mm-hmm. um, because you have people to be accountable to, you have people to be accountable for. Um, people count on you, you count on other people, you are showing up at least hopefully once a week mm-hmm. um, to be around people who share a common Uh, goal Goal and have you have their interest at heart they have your interest at heart you are part of a community as a community animal where humans are a community animal Mm -hmm. and that's all the stuff now like when there's all this research into loneliness about and it blows
1: my mind like the okay. cocaine rats <laughs> like the lab rats that you know like one uh, there are rats who are in a cage together um and you know who are given um uh, cocaine water or um food and um and you know they'll try the cocaine water but then they'll go to food um and that but if you have a rat by itself it'll just keep going back to cocaine water because mm-hmm. it's lonely it's funny. I was thinking of launching
4: that product later this year. Cocaine uh, water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But basing it on a coconut.
1: All right. Okay. So I'll call it Coco Cocaine. You. <laughs> Just um, anti-loneliness water. No, loneliness water. let just call it loneliness water.
4: Loneliness water. Oh, my God. It's so weird. Loneliness dust. Yeah. By the bag. Uh, but, yeah, so that that's the stuff around the, the, what fascinates me is that um, it wasn't until uh, like the 1850s around the first Industrial Revolution that... Buildings, houses were built with separate bedrooms. Yeah. Only like super landed gentry and people who were really wealthy had separate bedrooms. Back in the day, there was two rooms. There was mm. the kitchen and then there were everybody who slept. There was an outhouse and that was it. Everyone was all together. We all slept together. We were all in the same room together. We were constantly around other people, constantly rubbing up against other human beings, constantly like that's how we were for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's only recently, it's only the last 150 years that we've been putting ourselves in boxes, mm. isolating ourselves, completely cutting ourselves off from uh, our, I don't want to use the word environment like David Attenborough, but, you know, things that aren't human but are also living.
1: Yeah, you know our community.
4: Yeah, plants, grass, trees, Mm -hmm. sky, water, earth, sky, you know, sun, air. Um, We've kind of been shoving ourselves off to these – and I'm actually really interested in in this this at the moment, Um, you know, in that the parallels between animals who exhibit really strange behaviours in captivity Mm. and humans. Yeah, right. It's like if you take an animal away from Africa and you put it in a concrete cage with one glass wall so people can stare at it in a zoo, of course it's going to be weird and throw shit at the wall.
1: (laughs) It's not around his family and friends.
4: Mm. What are we doing to
1: ourselves? Doing everything in our power not to throw shit at the walls. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, It's a daily struggle.
4: (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I mean the thing about the the, you know these programs is that they base it was probably just a whole lot of trial and error, you know, and they kept the things that worked and they you know they discarded the things that didn't work, and so it's been you know eighty years of of. Of tens and then hundreds and then thousands and then millions of people just doing the things that work and chucking out the things that didn't work yeah so it's it's a program of experience, basically yeah it's like passing down from generation to generation
4: it's scary when you know people ask because i've, I've written the book about it now people uh, I wish I could stop it i don't know I'm so afraid I'm like yeah it's, it's when the pain of change the mm-hmm. f- when the fear of change becomes smaller than the pain of staying the same. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you've got to wait for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know, actually. Not for you? Well, no, absolutely. I needed the the gift of desperation. Uh, Um, But, you know, I mean, it's like if you keep on waiting for a rock bottom to happen, it's like you don't know where the rock bottom is because you, you, you bounce, basically. You bounce and then you can go lower and then you bounce and then you go lower again and then lower again. So why not just stop the process, you know, somewhere in the middle if you can? Like if you can... If you can get the willingness, um, some other way other than having to lose everything, then isn't it better to you know to not wait until you lose everything?
4: Yeah, what, how bad do you want it to get?
1: Exactly, because yeah. it can always get worse. <laughs>
4: yeah, always get way worse. <laughs> yeah, way worse. And I, oh yeah, I, I actually early on, early on, I used to feel, I used to feel almost guilt that I was sitting in these rooms and. My story wasn't as horrible as some of the other stories I was hearing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard have mm-hmm. heard some fucking scary shit. And I felt a great amount of guilt. And then my guy says to me, he goes, Listen, man, you just, you were lucky in that you saw that that's where you were heading. Mm. You saw that. You, can you accept that that was waiting for you? Mm. Oh, yeah, I can.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
4: That's exactly what was waiting for me if I didn't pull up. Um,
1: but, yeah, initially I was like, oh, I don't belong here. I'm not like that. That's a problem. That's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah, they don't feel like they belong because they don't have the same war stories. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, listening for the similarities and not the differences. And and that's why I can, you know, I can go to any 12-step program, whether it's, you know, around alcohol or substances or, um, or like process addictions like sex or gambling, and I can still get... The same message out of it because it's just doing something or putting something in you. It's about doing something just to distract yourself from your own thoughts and feelings. It's that it, they're all escapism behaviors, and so I can walk into any meeting and identify because you know the escapism runs strong in this one. Yeah, I uh,
4: I, I wrote about it. Like the first the first meetings I went to were um, the the gayest of gay meetings in West Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, but that was the, the one sober guy I knew who, you know, he, he had what I wanted and I would do anything to get it, mm. um, was a fantastically beautiful man. Um, he was like, if Tom of Finland was real, Oh my god, um, that's what he looked like. Like he's just, just with the mustache, with the muscles, with the tattoos and everything. I was like, goodness out. gracious. He's a good looking <laughs> Yeah, like, but he was sober. Yeah. I'm like, man how do you and he was alive at the party i like how do you do that mm. oh, I, I the, he goes come with me come to this bloody meeting with me so I went down to this meeting and you know I'm probably the only straight guy in there mm. and I'm thinking what am I going to get out of this there's maybe a hundred people in the room every person that got up and spoke I'm like oh shit that's my story mm. it's exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is what the ing is mm-hmm. drinking snorting fucking shopping whatever mm-hmm it's all that get me away from this feeling
1: in my body yeah i'm desperate to change the way i feel yeah yeah
4: um but then trying to find that power to change yourself is is scary shit
1: um yeah yes i mean yeah change is scary you know when you are used to like when you even even when it is causing so much destruction in your life um you kind of you know what you're in for, and so there's comfort in the in the familiarity, and like you, you know. But when you've been doing it for so long, there's a lot of fear, and there's a lot of fear in taking that crutch away. Mm-hmm. And you know, how am I going to one like deal with it? Because the feelings are going to come back when you stop medicating them. Yeah. Um. So how am I going to deal with life? One without the crutch, and then two with yeah. those feelings. It's like kind of, you know, it's that analogy of um, you know, uh, uh, driving. You know, 120 down the highway, um, and then when you slam on the brakes, the suitcases are going to hit you in the back of the head.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's also that great that great sense of identity of, but I'm so if I'm double op day though. What are people are going to do? I'm the life of the party. Yes. But, you know, this is yeah. who I've been since I was 18. Yeah. What am I? You know, who who am I going to be if I'm not that? Yeah. Even though I, you know, I live in a tent in my mum's backyard, yeah. And I can't hold down a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it do you help other guys
1: I do I um, I'm super involved in um, active in the fellowships I do a lot yeah. of service I um, have uh, temporarily you know sponsored a couple of people um, I can I can only do what I can do and so I do service in other ways yeah um, so like I organize unity days uh, um, yeah. and uh, do service at different levels like within the group and then also like at higher levels of yeah. organization like area to help the fellowship run at a at yeah. a more sort of state level,
4: it's a really interesting political model too. In fact. Russell Brand wrote a whole book about it. Mm. I don't know if have you ever read that. I haven't. Uh, the Revolution. He basically describes this independent, self sustaining, self governing fellowship that has at its core the health and well being of the people within and the people whom that it, that fellowship lives with and affects. Uh, that answers to a central. Um, also, self-sustaining,
1: self-supporting fellowship. Yeah. Um, so there and, is no one leader. So there's no one leader. So it's leader. kind of. Yeah, I can I can see actually how that would really appeal to him, like that mm. that um, structure of governance mm. as a political model for our society overall. But I don't. It only works because um, everybody is um, working from a spiritual basis, like as in putting. Not putting my own needs above anybody else's, and you can't really rely on anybody else to to be coming from a spiritual point of view, Um, because you 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 know you you can't rely on other people's morals. Well, yeah, and ethics.
4: Um, you can hope that there'd be good morals and ethics, but everyone's not going to share the same. Yeah, but somebody's going to take advantage of that.
1: Yeah, Um, they might. Yeah, yeah.
4: they might. It's a it's a utopian vision. Yes, I I think he's since. he said 's gone to university, he's going to university at the moment. he's you mm-hmm. know, learning a lot more about the fact that when he, when he launched into this political thing, he was quite undergunned. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was going into all the, uh, all the uh,
1: altruistic ideals. but he well, was coming from what he knew, which was yeah. recovery, which is yeah. it is like surprisingly kind of utopian because yeah. you know well you do sort of rely on the fact that um, you know everybody is trying to be the best person that mm. they can be, um, which Actually, works very, very well as a fellowship. I yeah. did a
4: thing yesterday at, at Parliament House for um, Mental Health Month,
1: which
4: mm-hmm. is wild, and I was, I was speaking to some people within the. Uh, obviously, you know, mental health and and recovery have quite the the crossover because mm. um, alcohol is a a really widely available, you know, self-administered depressant mm-hmm. that is uh, perfectly acceptable socially to, to apply to all kinds of, you know, mental illness symptoms. Mm-hmm. And no one seems to have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. The dosages seem to can, can get out of control. Yeah. <laughs> they certainly did for me. Um, but someone asked me, do I consider myself still alcoholic? Do I consider myself still in recovery? And I said, yeah. Mm. And I'm,
1: I'm fine with that. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your, what your thoughts are about that. Um, I mean, yeah, I've been very open and public um, about my history with crystal meth addiction. Um, and, you know, at first I – and still, actually, you know, I do worry about um, the stigma because, you know, crystal meth has a massive stigma attached to it. Um, and, uh, and around, you know, the identity of being an addict for people out in the, you know, in the corporate world or in the real world or in the, you know, the media world or whatever who – only have their own understanding of what addiction and what being an addict means and so you know when I'm coming from my you know my ownership of being an addict which is empowering in itself which reminds me that I need to put in work on a daily basis to make sure that I don't go back to that place mm. um, of you know of active addiction um, you know uh, by using this word to 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 be my most spiritual self and remind me on a daily basis that word has different connotations to other people, which, mm-hmm. and you know, like I don't, and I live in the real world. I don't just live in the fellowship where mm-hmm. where the word is a very positive one. I live out in the real world. where the other 23 hours of the day
4: when you've got to be around. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so, um, but at the end of the day, I, I still decided to be you know, to break my own anonymity at a, at the at a public level and and um, and say that I'm an addict because uh, well an addict in recovery, mm. um, because I thought the potential benefit to others outweighed the potential detriment to myself. Yeah. Um, and even though I'm not like not rolling in it, I'm not like I don't you know I don't have all these sponsors or I don't have the the job that I desire. That is not you know, that's not necessarily because I said oh, I'm an addict. It's, um, you know, so I just, I have to take the good with the bad and continue to work to make sure that this label that I see as a very positive thing is not, um, a hindrance, you know, like mm-hmm. I work so hard and be so overqualified that like that's, it's not a factor at all. Mm. I'm, I'm not in a position to hire people, but if I was in a position <laughs> of hiring people,
4: I would hire someone who has five years and, promote the shit out of them more than I would hire someone who's still kind of dabbling on the weekends. Oh, no, absolutely. Fuck yeah. Because someone who's got five years has a daily discipline, you know, deliberate step out of their bed to getting back into bed day mm. and they will be the most amazing employee, all right, versus someone who's, you know, oh, yeah, it's a beer at lunch. It's like, yeah, really? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, that for me personally, it's interesting that you talk about Crystal meth, because that's the stuff
1: that people were talking about in this meeting.
4: Oh, right. in that in in West Hollywood, mm-hmm.
1: and yes, yeah, so like actually, I probably could have imagined that a big game meeting in in West Hollywood. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah I can imagine. And I, I, I shook
4: when I was lucky because my drinking never had anything to do with my expression of my sexuality mm-hmm. yet when i was i'd never heard the stories and i'm sitting in these rooms and i'm hearing the stories of like guys who've got it a year two years three months clean and they show up to a, a grinder or a manhunt mm-hmm. date and they open the door and whoosh, someone yeah. blows it in
1: their face yeah
0: holy shit uh,
4: yeah it um, makes my skin crawl like that's
1: terrifying stuff. yeah um unfortunately uh with this particular drug, sex and sexuality and the drug are very, like, are, are, you know, intertwined um, for a lot of particularly boys. Um, and, yeah, it's a problem. And, um, you know, those who are serious about recovery will uh, and who know that sex is a trigger will, like, will delete all the apps, will be abstinent for a year, um you know like people who are willing to go to any lengths and so it is possible mm. um, and then it's just a matter of um you know reintroducing yourself um to sex in a safe environment mm. um you know and there's a lot of anxiety around it as well like am i even going to be able to do it like sex is scary i mean sex is weird like putting bits of you of each other into each other's bodies is just is a weird thing <laughs> like <totally> when, <laughs> weird thing. <laughs> I mean, sure, it feels good, but, like, when you look at it objectively, like, it's it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, I think it's just a matter of practice. Like, the more you do it sober, the better at it you'll get. Like, the, yeah. the further and the weaker and weaker that link between sex and drugs will get. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, whenever the topic of sex and sexuality comes up in, in Crystal Meth meetings, I, like you know, I make sure that I extol the the joys of sober sex and what, you know, how yeah. wonderful and awkward <laughs> and special it is. Um, yeah. But it is like it is wonderful because, you know, because a lot of boys do have a lot of fear around that and it's like, well, you need example, you need evidence to gather because if you've got all this evidence that it's a scary thing, um, that it's linked to drugs and stuff and you don't have any evidence to say that it is safe um and that, you know, I – Will be able to do it without drugs? Then yeah. obviously you're going to have a lot of fear. So it's
4: a bit. It's a. It's, it's puns. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> but um, once you, if been, you're lucky, it is. Yeah. One, but once you've, from my experience, you know, once you've had exposure to the, that kind of superpower, mm. you're like, oh my god, far out. You know, <laughs> you're like, look at what I do. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like. It's, I would, I would not want it like that. Mm-hmm. once you've experienced that life of that extremely, ex- extremely powerful sensory overload, mm-hmm. not having that initially, you know, this is, you know, for me and certainly, you know, that, that's me describing, you know, life on a hypomanic state but you know, I, can, I can relate from, from my own experience of using. Um, like when that's not there, you're like, oh, I remember that time, yeah. Mm. (laughs) And it's not as intense as it was. And it's just having to experience, like, accept that it's unsustainable. Yeah. I can't do that.
1: But, I mean, that's also, that's coming from, like, a glorifying point of view, like, of, you know, remembering, like, what it was in the Mm. old days. Hedonic recall. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, But if you have, you know, if you have a reality check around that stuff, it's like, guys can't, like, you know, you often can't come on, but that's not very technical termination, is it? Um uh, you, you often can't reach climax on these drugs anyway. Mm. So it's just like having sex for hours, which, you know, sounds fun. But when you actually think about what you were feeling at the time, it's like you weren't really feeling it. You were just going through the motions. You were just trying to, you were just being disconnected. And so, you know, if you have a reality check around that stuff, it's like, yes, like your brain was being flooded with, like, happy hormones. Um, but in reality, it was probably pretty sad, you know, like people who are uh, being in, in, in an environment where the people were gaunt and messy and doing dangerous things that they would never do sober, mm. like, and putting themselves in really dangerous situations, not caring about their own health. Mm. Um, you know, it's – you just have to have a reality check around that stuff and go, was it as good as what my um, my – Memory is trying to tell me that it was, um, and it's often the case that it wasn't.
4: No, it wasn't. No. Nah. and it's it's interesting you said that before. I, I remember because um, i i I stopped drinking during uh, the my my first marriage ended, but I'd stopped drinking a little while before that. But I'd never, so I'd never dated someone, mm. and that was weird. And I'd never kind of had that kind of courtship. Alcohol had always been involved with courtship. Mm-hmm. It had always been involved with, um, you know, the the hours before um, someone goes, yeah, all right, I'll come home. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd never, never done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was weird. It was weird. And actually, my relationship with Audrey is, is my first proper, actual sober relationship, and it, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had to kind of learn how to. How to how to how to do it for the first time? in, yeah. in many ways, as but a you it's, know, as a forty year old man.
1: But it's kind of like <laughs> I I like I mean the, I think the adventure has something you know like the adventure itself is exciting. Yeah, um, you know, like new experiences aren't bad things. They're kind of you know, and that's it's kind of the same. Like this is how I explain it to um, you know to guys in early recovery. Um, it's kind of like doing it for the first time again. And that's like, there's kind of fantasy in that mm. um, because a lot, like a lot of these guys have never had sober sex. And so it's like, yeah, it's like doing it for the first time again. It's, it's fun. It's awkward. It's um, you know, and it's, you know, if you're doing it in a safe environment and you give yourself permission to not finish, because I think that's something that also freaks a lot of guys out is, you know, like, what if I don't? And then that, they get in their head around that and so they're not able to be present. It's like, no, just be present. Like just in, like enjoy feeling the feelings as they are. Give yourself permission to not yeah. finish and just be present in the moment. Yeah. Be with their intimacy. Be with the cuddle. Feel the skin. Exactly. Smell the smells. Look mm. at the eyes. All that kind of stuff. Giggle when, you know, you accidentally fart. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly and that's it though as you said it's a preposterous thing for two
4: humans to do it's funny it's hilarious yeah it's like you get in these weird positions and you do all kinds of weird things to each Mm other
1: no (laughs) personal space whatsoever
4: (laughs) yeah it's it's uh it's, it's it's interesting um I'm really grateful that you're here. I didn't expect that we would do half an hour of <laughs> super sh- deep recovery the moment <laughs> you walked in the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real grateful, man. Thank you. Because it's important. I'm grateful to talk about this kind of stuff and, you know, and it's 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 rare on this show that I get the chance to, you know, have that kind of conversation with someone who's mm. got um, your kind of time um, and certainly that while we may have come to, um, recovery from different uh, using points, I guess, mm-hmm. that the central core of it
1: is all is, is it's the same. The same. Shit. It's and, the same shit, and that's you know again, like it's like the similarities, not the differences. Any yeah. of those, any of those processes or chemical or any addictions, they're yeah. all they all come back to a very similar um, starting point. So, how do you deal with? I mean, I don't, I don't know
4: about you, but for me. All the stuff that I used to drink to avoid, it doesn't, doesn't go, away. go away. No, you're just I postponing just, the problem. I just learned and have learned and keep
1: learning ways to be with it. Yeah. So what does is, what is being with it look like for you? I mean, like the escapism behavior is still, still runs pretty deep with me. Um, if the worst that I do is kind of shovel, you know, spoonfuls of peanut butter in my mouth and have three or four naps a day when I get overwhelmed, like you know, at least I'm not using drugs or drinking or, or acting out in a more damaging way. Like, yes, peanut butter can become quite damaging after time. <laughs> um, but... It's so good. I know. Especially on celery late at night. <sighs> That's my favourite. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, At least you do the celery bit. Get, 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 get that extra crunch.
4: When super crunchy is not crunchy enough, whack it on some celery in the fridge, boom. Mm.
1: And then a little bit of salt Wow.
4: <laughs> Stop it. You're,
1: you're enabling me. i make some right now if you want. It's 115 calories. I counted it. It's great. Oh, my God. 100. You see, I'm not using much peanut butter then. No, only 20 calories. Oh. <laughs> see, this is my problem. I, uh, I scoop it out of the tub, yeah. Uh, so Because I am who I am and I find ways. Okay.
4: Uh, so the, the the men's health cover was was made on this.
1: Oh, uh, was
4: made on this. Yeah, this portion control. Yeah, it's all about portion control. Yeah, so, I was, it's, so it's a kitchen scale. So I just put a kitchen scale on the table.
1: Yeah, look, moderation is you know if if you can do it, moderation's good. I tend to find that sometimes when it comes to like food, where that I do go to act out on, um, yeah. I sometimes I just have to abstain completely, like I do, you know, with drugs and alcohol, and and for me that was Nutella. So I haven't had Nutella in years. It's important sometimes to have the stuff in the house. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it is, it is good. Yes. Um.
4: Sorry. Where was where were <laughs> we going? I got about, distracted. I like, no. 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 It's fine. Uh, we were talking about peanut butter. I was asking about on on days. Oh, yes. On the, on the days when the when the stuff that you used to want to escape from mm-hmm. shows up, um, So I'm sure people would they're with us at this point, and they go, "Okay, that's fine." but what about yes what about when you feel icky in my body
1: yeah what do uh, you do yeah um i oh gosh what do i do i talk to somebody about it you know like um i've got a sponsor um so that i guess in out in the real world that would be like i don't know a mentor or a confidant or um a parent um yeah when stuff gets you know really i like i tend to find that the feelings aren't as big as, you know, what they used to be probably because, I mean, I've, I, I avoid a lot of situations now, like now I kind of got a lot of awareness around, you know, what's going to get me in trouble. And so I avoid that a lot of those situations. And so my life is, is a lot less, you know, chaotic than it used to be. But, you know, like I do, you know, stuff does still happen sometimes. And, um, and, you know, I do still have the desire to want to stick my head in the sand to pretend that it's all not happening. And I'm very good at that um, until I get called out on my behaviour and then I have to do something about it. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, so, when you get into
4: action, what does it look like?
1: Um, talking, uh, uh, talking, getting some guidance, um, writing it down because sometimes, like, I get really overwhelmed with, like, you know, if I've got lots of really big thoughts and feelings that are all very complicated that it's, and they're all very nuanced um, and, you know, it's all very nebulous... Putting it down on a piece of paper, like, just kind of gets each thought, takes it out of the cloud, and the cloud becomes thinner and thinner, and and it becomes – it's on the page, it's out of your head, and – I mean, this is why we have become a culture of writing. Um, you know, this is why we've developed writing is because writing is a really effective way at putting thoughts down so that you can then create more complicated thoughts. And so when things are down on paper, you can see them more clearly and then you can build on those ideas that you've got down on a piece of paper and it takes it out of your head. Um, so you don't have to be walking around with this anxiety because obviously, you know, you can. I, I'm I can only think of one thing at a time, basically. And, you know, when there's a couple of things, it's like they all just keep flicking in front of my eyes like a, like a picture show over and over again. And it all gets very overwhelming. Uh, so I put it down on a piece of paper and see if that helps me make heads and tails of things. Mm. Does... Uh,
4: l- let, me, let me ask you about, you know, because people might be wondering, and i wonder if there's a parallel. Um, the thing that made me very, very good at... Um, drinking and using Mm -hmm. also made me very, very good at my job, that brain that just absolutely 100% would not stop. Mm. And I'm wondering if – is there any aspect of
1: that that played a role in your elite sport career? Um, uh, Yeah, like perfectionism. Perfectionism, um, yeah, has been a big – uh you know it's not it's like one of those things like oh what's what's your worst quality oh it's perfectionism like <laughs> shut up but it's um oh, that can it, be it can be paralyzing it can be because it stops it prevents you from trying anything new and um and prevents you from letting go or be, ever being happy with anything you ever do like for example say you won an olympic gold medal um you know and that's you know you've had this childhood thought that has been so such a powerful emotional, you know, driver for you that, you know, if I become the best in the world at something then, you know, I'll get this positive reinforcement and this validation that I've been craving, you know, my mum will love me and and friends, you know, everybody I'll have friends and everyone will love me and I'll be popular. And then you get that and it's like the perfectionism just goes, "Uh, eh, but it's like it's not good enough," you know? Um it's it's like an empty it's an empty victory and um yeah yeah, even when you do get that thing that, you know, that you've this external, it's when you have external, it was was all external esteem for me. Like my, you know, I I became entirely dependent on, you know, like the scores from the judges or how many Facebook and Twitter followers I had or how much money I had in the bank as my um, indicators of my my worth. Um, And so if I got, you know, if I got an eight, I was good. If I got a nine, I was great. And if I got a 10, you know, you thought I was perfect, um, which was, um, it was a very direct form of feedback for me. And, um, but being so dependent, like, and, and also coming from this low self-esteem Point of view I used to compare myself to people a lot so even you know when I did get tens um, or even you know when I did have money in the bank, or even when I did have Facebook and Twitter followers I would always compare myself to people who had more than me not people who had less so I always felt less than um, even though it sounds illogical like that's you know you're always when you're so focused on where you want to be rather than where you are you know you never end up getting to where you want to be because you're always looking forward. Mm. Um, yeah what's the day after having that round piece of metal around your neck like oh it was amazing oh it was so good um I did I felt happy and popular it was relief actually it was relief that like everything that I had done in the lead up to that had been worth it um and it was also disbelief because I never believed that you know some Gumby queer kid from backwater Brisbane would ever be special enough to win an Olympic gold medal so um yeah that was awesome but um, when I got home from the Olympics, I looked at the world rankings like on the, on the FINA website, the, um, the governing bodies website. And because the way world rankings work is, is about accruing points over the year, the Chinese diver – had actually won more events earlier in the year than I had. And so had accrued more total points. And so I still wasn't the best in the world, even though I had an Olympic gold medal, I wasn't technically the best in the world. And so, you know, that childhood thought started going around in my mind. I'm um, still not the best in the world. And um, so, I, like, I mean, I did use that to set a goal to become the best in the world. But even when I did become the best in the world in 2010, like it still wasn't enough. I was, you know, it, it's it. I didn't get that validation that, You know i thought i would i i wasn't happy i you know because all like i i had no ability to esteem myself from within to feel good about myself um and so you know i even like i had been clean and sober for a couple of years like around beijing um and you know there were environmental factors um that sort of facilitated that I wasn't actually trying like I just I changed cities and um and you know and changed training environments and stuff and that was enough of a change um for me to you know to shake me out of my teenage depression and and using um but you know after that that realization in 2010 a few years later um, when I was after, you know, winning the world championship and still not getting that, that validation, I, I had a relapse with the depression and, and went straight back to the last crutch that I'd used to change my feelings as a teenager and that was crystal meth and, yeah. It's, um
4: it, it might be, it might, might be hard for people to hear that, that you become the undisputed best in the world at the thing that you've dedicated your life to mm. and yet... It's then it's not, it doesn't do what you thought it would do. It's, well, it is, you know, and I can relate, man. I can mm, 100% relate. Mm. I, um, I remember standing on stage at the Opera House Idol Grand Final. It was like 10,000 people there mm. screaming my name, fireworks going off. I was like, hey, good night. Walk up stage. <sighs> <sighs> okay. What do I do now? Mm. It was like nothing.
1: It was like, it never happened. It was really weird. Mm. Yeah. um, And I mean, yeah, I felt, obviously I couldn't tell anybody because one... That's the thing, you feel so much shame, (laughs) don't you? So like how ungrateful must I look if if I'm like an Olympic champion and the best in the world and I'm unhappy about it. Like, well, I wasn't unhappy about that, but just I was unhappy. Like, you know, what do i have to be depressed about um and so that's you know that's a problem with um with anxiety and depression it's like yes some of it comes from trauma but then some of it also you know some people are just genetically predisposed to you know depressive or, or anxiety disorders and they feel the same but they shame themselves because they feel like it's unjustified and that shame just kind of compounds it keeps it hidden and these people suffer unnecessarily for much longer than what they would if they, you know, had just reached out. And, um, and so that kept me sick for a long time, you know, mm. and like, I, I tried to stop using drugs by myself so many times, like cause I was still competing and I wasn't using it for performance enhancement. I was using it to shut my brain off. Um, and so, and yeah. And so, I would detox before every competition because I knew I'd be drug tested and I wasn't using it for performance, but I I didn't want to get found out. And that detox every single time was so painful. It was the worst. And I would promise myself every single time with every single cell in my body that I was not going to use again. And every single time I like I failed that mm. and that tore my self-esteem in half every single time. I wasn't able to follow through with a promise that I'd made myself with absolute conviction. And then eventually like I just stopped, like I just gave up trying and, um, and spiraled downwards and downwards. And, um, yeah, eventually I just got to the point where I, I realised that I couldn't fix this problem by myself. It's a, it's
4: underestimatedly powerful thing mm. The fuck it. Yeah. Oh, fuck it. Ah, <laughs> fuck, oh, fuck it. I'm here. Yeah. Fuck it, it's sitting in front of me. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. And then it's it, it, uh, yeah. It's uh well mate, I'm bloody glad that you 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 made it out. Mm. Cuz there's not many people that are able to pull out of that kind of
1: that kind of thing. It's uh I think when you put in enough, it's the willingness to put in the work that it takes to um because like i think recovery works because um because you build a life that you're not willing to lose um you know you put in sort of mental um barriers in between using at first but then once you start Looking at the underlying causes of it. Um, once you start connecting with with people and and you know things around you and 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 um, and then and you start clearing the wreckage from your past and and looking at these patterns of behavior that keep coming up that keep causing damage in your life. And then when you um, then when you start you know giving back and being of service to others, like this is basically what the twelve steps is. Like in in order, it's doing all of these things. What it's doing is setting yourself up for a life that you that you're not willing to lose, which you would if you went back to drugs. And so, there becomes no good reason to use drugs anymore because it's not a solution to anything. It's just it will just cause more problems. And so, you know, when when you are living a life where you know that drugs are not a solution to anything, there's no um, enticement. There's no. Yeah, there's no there's no urge to go and use drugs. You just you've you've put it in such an extraordinary way. I've never heard it said like that.
4: You, you build a life that you're not willing to lose, mm. and as the sound of renovation happens around us, um, and I've got to say, like as a as a Moodle owner, you were really good about half an hour ago telling me some really serious shit while Frankie just flung around the (laughs) kitchen playing ball with himself. He's like so
1: used to it. I was so grateful. Normally I have to lock Frank away, but you went bling. I'm like, all right, cool, let him go. He played with him until he got sick of it. Now, I don't know, he's disappeared (laughs) somewhere. Oh, he's He's asleep. He's asleep
4: out of bed somewhere. Um, But, yeah, you saying you build a life that you're not willing to lose, Mm. that is when I think about, and you know the the you know the eight and a half years, the urges still pop up they do. they're there for about they're there for about a breath
1: mm.
4: you know, and in the space of that breath, I think about Audrey, I think about Georgia, I think about the career that I have now I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, nah. Because And then I, in the same way what you described earlier, I think about what did it actually look
1: like? Mm-hmm. Not, the, not
4: the fantasy version, not the hip-hop video. What did it actually look like? Know,
1: you think about uh, the last drink, not the first one. Not that sexy, to be
4: honest. Mm. Do I want to swap that for this?
1: No. <laughs> okay.
4: All right. I've got to do something else.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's
4: pretty much it.
1: Yeah. Build a life you're not willing to lose. And those thoughts, like, I mean, of course, you know, triggers happen all the time. Yeah. But... um, those, yeah, those thoughts get fewer and further between, and that the the sort of physical impact that it has on you. Well, like when you have a trigger, you know that little mm. flutter of excitement or whatever, it gets weaker and weaker until it just becomes a logical thing. Like, you know, God, drugs would be good right now. Uh, really? Like, <laughs> do you want to think about that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. My, um, let me ask you
4: this. Um, my uh, when I first got diagnosed with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. My doctor used to say to me, "Don't think for a second that elite, elite Olympic
1: athletes don't have a little bit of. Mm, oh, absolutely. Yeah, would you agree with that? Oh, I think I have this theory that you know, like that the highest echelon of elite athletes are fucked up in some way because why would you put yourself through all of that pain and suffering and f- you know, like just punishment for years and years with no like. Uh, you don't know that you're going to get an outcome, but yet, like there's something so powerful. Um, they like they must be getting something. They must, there must be some very powerful driver there to put yourself through all of that punishment for years and years and years, when you could just go, mm, no, nah, that's too hard. Like why would I? Why would I put myself through that? Yeah.
4: How um, long does it take from when you stand on the edge of a five-meter springboard? To when you enter the water, what, 18 seconds? What? No, it's like three seconds. Okay. Yeah. Two, two even. If you're going for two cycles, there's like eight years of your life mm. for like a essentially a series of movements that you'll complete in less time than it takes to take a breath. Yeah. For the chance of what?
1: 0.00, <laughs> like, you know, so if you, like, yeah. Yeah. It's, um yeah, there's, so the chance of actually getting it is so minuscule. Like, why would you, yeah.
4: But you must have got something out of that discipline, out of that physical discipline, out of the community, the camaraderie, the coaching. You must have got something out of
1: it. Y- yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. After I got into recovery, it was... Oh, even before, I guess, it just, it depended, you know, like when I was a teenager, it probably like stopped me from killing myself, like just to have a structure, even though I was hating diving itself anyway. Um, I saw it as my one ticket to being special. And so, you know, it's, um, yeah, it probably just kept me from, you know, ODing in an alley behind a McDonald's or something. As I got a, like when I was actually in a training environment that I actually enjoyed and where I felt accepted and embraced and loved, and that had a profound effect on my self esteem. And then I was present, and then in tra- in training sessions, um, and then you know, and I was setting goals, and you know, because I was present and happy in training sessions, um, you know, I was able to commit myself wholeheartedly to it, where I wasn't before because my heart wasn't actually in it. Um, and then that had an effect on my results, and then you know, so. Uh, like there's certainly something to be said for exercise and for community. Like I, I had a training group that I really enjoyed, you know, seeing twice a day, every day as well. Um, so like, of course, yeah, there's, there's great stuff to get out of sport. It's just a matter of, um, your mentality around it. And, um, and, you know, I, I've spoken about this because I, I've had this kind of existential crisis in recovery going like, you know, do I, do I try as hard to, and this probably goes back to, you know, people in sport as well. Do I try so hard for a goal that is potentially not achievable? You know, like, am I just um, like, I think there's this saying, like if you want to be happy, stop focusing on the things that you don't have and and focus on the things that you do have. It's like, well, but how does that work with goal setting? You know, like with trying to have a career, Um, and, you know, and somebody else, uh, an actor actually, who has been in recovery for several years, who went through this before me, gave me this wonderful bit of wisdom. It's like, you do this work on your self-esteem so that you're okay, no matter what. And that, and you still work towards these goals, but you let go of the outcome. And so, you know, that even if these goals don't ever come to fruition, You'll be okay, um, but that doesn't stop you from putting in the effort on a daily basis, and so that's what I try and do. Um, uh, even around my recoveries, I, you know, I put in a little bit of like work every day. Um, I do my gratitude lists in the morning. Um, I still do a meeting every day that I can get to. Um, you know, I put in just a little bit of work every day, and that, you know, it, it, and that's only like an hour and a half out of 24 hours, the rest of the, you know, the 22 and a half hours of the day, I can do whatever I want. And so I choose to either go to university or, or, um, or upskill, um, vocally or, you know, or, or write new jokes and materials for stage shows or, um, or, uh, you know, look at, I don't know, whatever, but I just put in a little bit of work on a daily basis in all of these different areas of my life. And, um, with the faith that, um, that something might come to fruition one day. And like, it's, you have to put in that little bit of work. Otherwise, you know, if you don't do anything, nothing will happen. So you just have faith that just a little bit of work over time will add up to more work. will add up to more work. will add up to something. It's letting go of the outcome is, is such a,
4: such a big thing. Yeah. Um, when I, and I'm, I'm really grateful you, you shared that with us. Um, Letting go of the outcome is, is a huge thing, and I, it's something that I had to learn how to do. Like, mm. I, I write down every morning, it's like I, I strive to be exceptional at my job. Mm. Does that mean I want a number one show? If I'm exceptional at my job, that might happen. Mm-hmm. But exceptional at my job means I can go home today at the end of work and go, Yep, I did it. Did that. Yeah. I was the best I could be today.
1: Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's validating in itself, you know, like being able to achieve those goals. And it's like, it's figuring out the difference between the things that you can control and the things that you can't control. So I can control how much work I put in on a daily basis. I can't control the outcome because they're like, you know, I could be the best in the world at my job, for example. Um, but I, there might be other people who, you know uh, who are, who make the decisions about who actually gets the job. Yeah. There could be other factors at play, uh, um, and those
4: decisions have nothing to do with your ability. Exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> could you could be the I could be the best in the world at my job, but I'm ugly, and it's a it's a job that requires a beautiful face. So you know, you're not. But exactly, <laughs> yeah. E- so it's, exa- exactly, it's just being aware of the things that I can control, yeah. the things that I can't control, and I can control how much work I put in. Um, and, you know, and just have faith that if I put in enough work, stuff will happen. What's at university? Um, I just finished my linguistics major. And so now I'm using up the rest of my credit points to do a minor in media to try and make my um, degree just a little bit more practical. Yeah. because. Um, yeah like I love like linguistics is, is a passion of mine but um for folks I, who don't know what linguistics is it's the study it? of language yeah. like or, like every, literally every aspect of language right from every sound that is is made in human speech in all of the languages of the world um, they're the different way and then building up into bigger units of sound and meaning so the way those sounds are put together um, and how they influence each other all the different ways that words are put together in different languages, the ways that sentences are put together in different languages. Um, uh, uh, is, it, is it also
4: the kind of non-chom- non-Chomsky vibe of if a, if a society does not have a word for war, will war never happen? If society does not have a singular noun for a person, does that mean people are always a
1: collective, those <laughs> sorts of things? Yeah, um, that's um, – yes, yeah, so a philosophical – stuff around language as well um semantics pragmatics so yeah there's um you know these the, what you were just describing I think sort of fits into uh this universalist or um relativist theory where it's like um yeah how how the brain um how the brain puts language to thoughts like because culture is passed on through language mm-hmm. um and so you know if like if a, if a language doesn't have a word for a color, does that mean these people don't perceive this color? Um, you, yeah. I mean, there, there's something different in there as well because there's a bit of biology involved um, um, that that does influence that. But um, yeah, but basically, we do find concepts easier to understand when we have a word for them. Doesn't mean we don't, you know, like we're not able to perceive them like we could see that people are hurting each other and we could go they're hurting each other even if we don't have a word for war we know that that's you know doesn't look fun (laughs) yeah um yeah so the way the brain files information like that um uh, the way um power dynamics are you know are reinforced in societies with language you know with uh languages with um Polite forms um, versus informal forms, mm. or um, languages with honorifics, um, sexist language—you um, know—that reinforces, you know, power dynamics um, within cultures and within societies. So, basically, everything to do, everything that mm. you can possibly think of that to do with language is yeah. A- for example, if if in you know, a if. Uh,
4: Every time a you know someone refers to an you know, did you what did your doctor say? Did he ask you if it was this, mm, mm-hmm. rather than did they ask you? Yeah, like if, if if you if you've never, you know, used the word that the doctor could be a woman. Yeah, you know, what
1: does that people re- assume? And what does they that reinforce that a nurse is a woman and True. that a doctor is a male? True. Um, yeah. Um,
4: yeah. But that's that's like that's a whole other kettle of fish. It's like microaggressions that people don't understand <laughs> making, and you know what what effect does that have on the young woman who's uh, you know reading that or listening to that or seeing yeah. that? Yeah.
1: Um, um, and I did a study um, on with a, a local, you know, one of our local popular papers, not the most highbrow of the papers um, in Sydney. No. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but uh, and I collected a, a corpus, like a a, a bunch of um, of articles that added up to about one hundred and twenty thousand words, um, anything to do with sort of LGBTI based, like anything to do with that sort of stuff, um, and uh, and then with that one hundred and twenty thousand words, I was able to. Uh, run that through a program just to see what kind of word associations were made between, you know, words like gay, um, and you know, and then you can start making um, uh, inferences about uh, that that paper's position on and how they're trying to guide or sway or, or, you know, convey different meanings by the word by the word associations that happen around these words, um, which is very interesting in itself. So you might not be able to say. Like, obviously, like, you know, you might be able to say that one writer seems to have a bias, but it might be diluted over the whole paper. So yeah. you can't say that the whole paper has a bias. But then when you actually see the whole paper together um, run through this program, the numbers don't lie. And what does that do for the person who's been reading that paper for 10 years every day? And, mm. and you know, they the things
4: they've been indoctrinated to without them knowing, yeah. without them realising. Their attitudes towards things
1: are reflective of what they read. Mm. This shit's important. Yeah, and you can tell you can tell where um, where they like. For example, it was around the gay marriage debate. Well, yes. so you can tell where some, what someone's um, sort of allegiance is whether they use the term gay marriage, same sex marriage, or marriage equality. And so, gay marriage is it tends to be used by people who weren't supportive of it because yeah. it's othering. It's not marriage. It's gay marriage. You know, mm-hmm. um, same-sex marriage was kind of a more neutral term and marriage equality is for it was used by people who, you know, wanted to emphasise the equality part. Mm. Um, and so just, yeah, words like, uh, things like that around language I find really fascinating. Oh, man, I'm all about it. <laughs> I, I
4: love it. And I love also that it comes full circle with
1: your calligraphy and you can put those words into such, you know,
4: extraordinarily powerful visual ways of people perceiving this. Oh, the whole idea of like trying to make, all, all we're trying to do is, you know, it's like the ancient science fiction film of, of two people sitting in chairs next to each other with a, a bucket on their head and a rod between the two of them mm-hmm. just trying to, here's what I'm thinking, I want you to think the same thing. I want you to feel and think this, I want you know, I want you to be the validation. I want you to feel mm-hmm. and see what I see and feel and see. I can't do that yet so it's only through what I speak and what I can visually represent to someone mm. um, uh, and that's all. That's all of it. And does this? How and that's, this is what, that's how you do it with language. True.
1: How does this play into the performance stuff that you do? Um, and what, why do you like to get on stage? What do you want to do out of that? I mean, I s- still get validation out of yeah. it. Like I'm still, I'm not, I'm not completely um, so enlightened that I don't still get, you know, still crave that validation sometimes. Mate, uh, I love
4: a standing O. Come on. Uh, yeah. I still,
1: I always will. Um, but yeah, it's just like having a healthy mentality around it. Like I'm still okay even if people don't laugh at my jokes and clap at me. But it's a nice bonus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Um, I use uh, I use my shows as just another medium, just another vehicle for me to share my story. Um, well, th- that was the first two shows was about um, was about you know addiction and, and mental health and stuff. Um, this last show is basically just you know just a bit of stage idiocy like just a bit of tomfoolery um just a you know a fun hour of um you know camp fun funny songs and stories and and jokes based very very closely on actual events and um but yeah I I I just love to entertain like and I always have I think I've always been a performer you know even when I was an athlete um you know the bigger the bigger the competition like the more of an adrenaline rush I got out of it and the better you know I would dive um yeah, I love, I love performing and entertaining. I, uh,
4: I'm really grateful to have had you here today because even though, oh, hang on, what part
1: of Brisbane did you grow up in? Camp Hill. Yes. <laughs> yes. In Dorothy Street in Camp Hill, oh no less. Oh, my God. <laughs> in Queensland.
4: If that's not Gold Star, I don't know what is. That's brilliant that is brilliant i hope you use that in your show yeah. i do oh, yeah. i did
1: recycle that joke oh, yep. perfect. Life. and i was born on mardi gras weekend so i literally had no chance to be straight right yep. right I, I i lived in kruparoo for a little while oh just, yeah just, Neighbors. Down, just down the street um and then
4: um Hello, sweetheart i uh yeah i grew up on the other side i grew up on the, the kind of chapel hill um kenmore oh, area. yeah lovely yeah uh, it was not quite. Then but but com- it is pretty. now. Yeah, yep, yep. Now yep. it's now it's like, oh my god, it's almost in a city now. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I just, yeah, twenty absolutely. minutes from town. Then it was like, you live where? <laughs> <laughs> where are they? Um But it's so lovely that you know we we couldn't. I think it just shows but, that you know even though we're we're quite different that there's so much so many things that we share. I'm really grateful for that. I didn't know that was mm. going to happen today. Mm. I'm me really, too. I'm really grateful that you came around, man. Yeah, and me that, too. Um, for people who are listening that might have identified a bit with some of the stuff we were speaking about earlier, what would you say their first move should
1: be? Um. Uh, look, uh, I remember being terrified about, um, I guess, like, one, I mean, once I accepted that that was a problem, um, you know, I realised that I had to do something about it. But um, I think this idea of, like, god um kept me away from um those programs for too long um and even like even just going to the meetings like was terrifying in itself um but you know there are spiritual principles around you know anonymity um you know who you see at a meeting and what you hear at a meeting or stays in a meeting um and you know because everybody's worried about their anonymity basically so even if you do see your doctor or your colleague or your um you know gynecologist or whatever at a meeting like everybody you know is spiritual enough to preserve their own anonymity um nobody cares that you're there in fact people are happy that you're there and that you're willing to to you know to change your life um the other thing is the god word and um like God was my Regina George, like I felt personally victimized by Christian God because of, you know, growing up in a Catholic convent primary school and blah, 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 you know, and being gay, why would God make me this way just to send me to purgatory kind of stuff? Um, It's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program. And I think a lot of people don't actually believe in God. It's just that the people who invented the – who created the program – you know, they, they were in the, in the 1920s, 1930s, Bible Belt Like God was the only word that they knew, and that's how, how they did it. But um, there are workarounds and, and, you know, it's emphasized in meetings that it's not a God program. There are no affiliations with church or religions or anything like that. It's just a word. And, mm. um, and you know, going through the steps, like step two is about learning how to strip away anybody else's definition of the word God and to create your own. And so, you know, mine is, is an obscure one and I had to work really hard at it, but mine is just about action. So my God is action, putting in action, because I, I, I know that as long as I do the right thing, the right things will happen. Um, and so, you know, putting in action like, you know, doing my gratitude list is, you know, is part of my God or putting in action to go to a meeting and connecting with people. That's, you know, that's my God, a group of people um, all trying to do the right thing, are more powerful than one person by themselves trying to do the right thing. Um, it's a bit abstract. You know, I think a lot of people who don't believe in, in religion will think of like the universe um, as the, you know, it's just anything. It's, yeah, that's, my, that's my one. Yeah, it's just anything that's more powerful than yourself. I mean, like I, as despite all my trying, I am not more powerful than gravity. So... That's more powerful than me. Yeah, <laughs> I tried. Believe me, I tried. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah. it's it's um, you know it's, it's basically I just had to open up my idea. It, I was really close-minded to you know the God thing for a really long time, but you know I heard um, that you know the one thing that cannot the one thing that cannot um, fail at keeping you in everlasting denial is contempt prior to investigation. And I thought, well, I'm being very narrow-minded about this whole God stuff. In fact, that narrow-mindedness is tantamount to the narrow-mindedness of zealots who, you know, believe that there is God and, um, and you know, every, all non-believers will go to hell. Like, that, it's the same narrow-mindedness. And so that just kind of helped me to just relax a little and be kind of open-minded to the fact that I might not be the most powerful thing in the universe. Well, that
4: and for me, that's, exact, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. That, And I, I agree with you. That's the thing that freaked me out when Mm -hmm. I first got there. Um, And then I realized, oh no, this is just a way to put into words, linguistically, Mm -hmm. um, that I'm not the most important thing on the planet. I do not control everything Mm -hmm. as much as I think I do Mm -hmm. want to or, you know, constantly wishing to. Um, I'll have a lot less pain in my life if I just accept that I'm just another person and there's something way bigger than me in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it was exactly that. It was like almost the physics of it Physics, yeah. It was almost like the undeniable – universal truth of all energy, everything's got a positive and an equal negative, that there is a force that, are, and, and, you know, there's nothing I could do about that. Yeah. And that's actually what's in charge. Uh, I'm just one of, I'm, I'm a bunch of atoms walking around. I'm mm-hmm. you know, much, another bunch of atoms. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of pretty that's, atoms, but still yeah, just, just atoms. Um, um, the yeah. best the best one I heard was, um, I like to talk about this a bit because I think it helps people find a way. I, I remember hearing a guy uh, talk about that he used to pray to his tractor <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was a farming guy. Mm-hmm. And he, like his dad was a preacher, I'm making that up, but it was like he had a poor relationship with church and his guy was like, you've got to find something. You've got to, find something. Got to mm-hmm. find something bigger than you. I don't care what it is, has going to be bigger than you. And so he was a tractor because without his tractor, he couldn't feed his family, he couldn't mm-hmm. look after his, you know, if he didn't care for it, if he didn't respect it, if he didn't accept, you know, got to look after
1: this thing, I've got it. You know? mm-hmm. So he would pray to his damn tractor yeah. and the work. And like I think, you know, I, you know, I have tried to intellectualise it a lot and um you know and it feels stupid to to pray um but you know at the end of the day it's like it's goes back to that cbt that you were talking about cognitive behavioral therapy it's like even if i just say the words which is like what a prayer is it's just saying these words over and over again like they're gonna Sink in eventually. Mm-hmm. They're gonna, you know, have some sort of impact. Kind of like how at thirty, I can still recite the Lord's Prayer, even though I didn't really understand what it was saying or anything. It's just words that were just indoctrinated into me. You can control, like you can choose what your own prayers are, um, and you know, if they're if you're choosing prayers that actually sort of are helpful to you um, and helping to guide, you know, your thoughts and your actions in a spiritual way or whatever. If you just say this stuff to yourself over and over again, it'll become automatic, and it's kind of, you know, like carving deep channels into your into your mind, into your into your thoughts. Um, much like, you know, the addiction um, the addiction thought pathways carved very very deep channels, and you know the brain is all about efficiency, and so the more you use a pathway, the more efficient it becomes, and the easier it becomes to fall into those those thought traps. And so if you sort of replace the or if you if you you know if you create new deep channels and you keep on using those, they will become more automatic over time. And so you'll start having more healthier thought patterns. And so that's what I that's how, how I think about prayer. It's I, I couldn't think of a more perfect way to say it. Mm. That's exactly I love it, man.
4: Thanks so much for coming around. Yeah, thanks. It's been super duper.
1: Yeah. I <laughs> like yeah, I so seldom get to talk about um yeah, recovery in like deeply like this. Yeah, um, I mean Yeah, because I, I don't really, you know, often
4: have that too many people on, on the show where I can have the conversation that respects the boundaries of what it is to talk about it. Yeah. I've had plenty of conversations on this show that I've then had to go to Andy and go, you're going to have to cut that 40 minutes out, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> what I have to explain to them really? is how it works. This is why we can't. Yeah. Um, cool, man. All right, I'm going to take your photo, all right? Yeah, let's do it. Cool, cool. That was Matthew Mitchum. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you have a little bit more of an insight into what life in recovery can certainly be like. And I hope you have a bit more of an insight into that magnificent man. Uh, you can find Matthew on Twitter. Let him know you heard him on the show. Matthew Mitchum, M-A-T-T-H-E-W underscore M-I-T-C-H-A-M. And he's also on Instagram, Matthew Mitchum 88, M Y T C 88. Let him know you heard him here on the show. Go see his show, Saturday Night 7 p.m. the 27th of October at the Bondi Pavilion Theatre, up close and personal. Tickets are in the show notes. Just click on the show notes for this show and click on the link. You'll be able to get there. Um, Sydney, speaking of going to see a show, if you want to make it two for two, go see Matthew one night, me the next. Um, Sydney, come and see the gig. Uh, Back after the break, live. It's uh, Sunday night, 28th of October at Giant Dwarf. Dwarf. This will be the last Sydney show for a long time long time so if you don't make this show um, it's unlikely because once we get out of February then we get into Bachelor production again and it's unlikely that I'll get a chance to do another show for a a while so um, I really hope you can make it, it's a really great show, Um, it's a great night where you and I can connect and and really have a a beautiful moment together Um, I really enjoyed it last time we did it and i'm looking forward to doing it in sydney again melbourne thank you so much you sold out the first show in eight days you're incredible second show in melbourne december 13th uh, chapel off chapel all tickets for all gigs osherginsburg.com brisbane february eighth. keep the night free uh, we just have to pull a few more levers back in the in the back of the website before we get the the ticket for sale side up um and that's happening february 8th so fear not um I hope i can see you i hope you can come and say hi i hope we can shake hands and hold and hug and and meet each other and all that kind of stuff because that's what happens at the shows after we sing some songs together it'll be really lovely anyway thanks so much to everyone that made the show today um, big thank you to Andy Maher, my audio producer, who uh, tirelessly uh, edited this show and, um, and very, very, very compassionately was very careful about the anonymity aspect of talking about sobriety. A massive thank you to Rachel Barrett, my show producer, who has been nothing but superb all week. Mike Mills for making the great music that you heard on the show. Audrey Griffin for all the early morning cuddles that helped me get that number out of 10 down closer to zero and you for all the wonderful podsy pictures p-o-d-s-i-e that's the picture of what you're looking at right now as you listen to this so take a photo of what you're listening to right now what you're looking at right now and send it to me just grab me on instagram or send us your email at gmail.com um it's lovely to see where you're listening to the show and where you're reading the book thank you so much i'll see you on sunday sydney if you're there hit me on uh, instagram send me a dm let me know that you're coming and um, I look forward to seeing you. Excellent. Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.